This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Slavery and the City, a three-part series brought to you by the Open City Podcast. This series is about Britain's role in the transatlantic slave trade and its legacy embodied in the city of London. The biggest gathering London has seen in weeks, and one of the most passionate. These are difficult histories, and indeed, particularly when power indeed and finance <laughs> mix. So you cannot separate racism from capitalism. One does not emerge without the other. Through an in-depth examination of three key buildings in the capital, this series attempts to uncover Britain's role within the black diaspora how it profited directly and indirectly from the trading of slaves, and questions how architecture continues to convey cultural and social power in 2021. In episode one, we defined the themes of empire and colonialism. We examined how London and the global north benefited from these inherently racist mechanisms. In this episode, we're examining London's Guild Hall in relation to the Zong Massacre, and putting collective amnesia on trial. Through conversations with an expert on the slave trade and a Rhodes Must Fall campaigner, I'll question how societies process guilt and I'll seek answers as to how we begin to move forward. It didn't come to light because 103 murders had taken place. The judge made it clear in the Guild Hall this was a case about property, not about human beings. When I was involved in Rose Must Fall in 2015, when this was one of the first kind of early iteration of these kinds of movements, it struck a nerve that I didn't know was so raw. I'm Selassie Setifer, and this is Slavery and the City. We're going to start this episode with a story that was heard in London's Guildhall back in 1783. Sat right in the heart of the capital, the Guildhall has been home to the City of London Corporation for 800 years and has welcomed guests through its imposing neo-Gothic facade for 600 of those years. The building is made of great halls, galleries, and the largest surviving medieval crypt in London. 
The Guildhall's architecture was designed to reflect the power and prestige of London and its leaders. Here, the merchant class held court. They created laws and regulations that generated and protected London's wealth. Countless infamous trials have been heard here for literally hundreds of years. But critically for us, the trial of the Zong Massacre took place here in 1783. So great were the consequences of this trial, it entirely reinvented Britain's narrative in relation to the slave trade. No longer would Britain see herself as holding the rightful whip hand over an enslaved race of Africans, Britain now saw herself as their benevolent saviour. I'm joined by fellow co-host of the Open City podcast, Zoe Cave, to begin unpacking this tragic event. The Zong was the name of a slave ship that left the coast of Africa on the 6th of September 1781 with 470 slaves. There was so much money to be made at the time from the slave trade that many captains took more slaves than their ships could accommodate in order to maximise profit. The Zong's captain, Luke Collingwood, overloaded his ship with slaves and within two months of embarking, many of them had begun to die from disease and malnutrition. The Zong then sailed in an area in the mid-Atlantic known as the Doldrums, or the Middle Passage, a risky area known for long periods of little or no wind. As the Zong became stranded there, sickness caused the deaths of seven of the 17 crew members and over 50 slaves. Increasingly desperate, Captain Collingwood decided to jettison some of the cargo in order to save the ship and provide the ship owners with the opportunity to claim for the loss on their insurance. Over the next week, the remaining crew members threw 132 slaves who were sick and dying over the side. Another 10 slaves threw themselves overboard in what Collingwood later described as an act of defiance. Upon the Zong's arrival in Jamaica, James Gregson, the ship's owner, filed an insurance claim for the financial loss that was caused by the loss of valuable cargo. Gregson had argued that the Zong did not have enough water to sustain both crew and the human commodities. The insurance underwriters disputed the claim, citing that the Zong had 420 gallons of water aboard when she was inventoried in Jamaica. Despite this, the Jamaican court in 1782 was found in favour of the owners. The insurers went on to appeal the case in the Great Hall in the Guildhall in 1783, and in the process provoked a great deal of public interest and the attention of Great Britain's abolitionists. The leading abolitionist at the time, Granville Sharp, used the deaths of the slaves to increase public awareness about the slave trade and further the anti-slave trade cause. It was he who first used the word massacre. For me, these kinds of atrocities really speak to how slavers and traders saw black people. There was absolutely no regard for the fact that black people were people, human beings whose lives mattered as much as anyone else's. People who were mothers, fathers and daughters. People who were intelligent, had ambition, hopes and dreams. We often speak of slaves being the property of their owners, but what these types of atrocities demonstrate is the fact that for no reason, other than the colour of their skin, black people were treated by white people as even less than property. The lives of black people could simply be thrown away. It's incredibly heartbreaking that this sentiment still rings true today. Let's go back to 1783. What happened next, Zoe? Rather than arriving back to London and being tried for murder, the slave owner returned back to file an insurance claim for his loss of cargo and initially won the claim. 
the insurers appealed the slaver's claim and by chance an abolitionist was at the hearing. The case was then picked up and used by the abolitionists to garner public sympathy and support the abolitionists' cause. The Zong massacre becomes known as a turning point in the abolitionist movement, which puts an end to the slave trade in 1807. But it wasn't until 1833 that the ownership of slaves was outlawed. Revisionist historians now look at the Zong as this highly emotional moment that was seized upon by abolitionists to tragically credit their cause. The final point to make on this is that the Zong massacre creates a new narrative for Britain, where the country starts to view itself as the saviours of the uncultured, of the uncivilised nations. In some regards, it creates the moral justification for imperialism. The Zong massacre galvanises the abolitionist movement in Britain. But how does it contribute to these ideas of colonialised memory and collective amnesia that become a core part of Britain's identity? The ways in which the Zong massacre was represented and narrated by abolitionists tells us more about abolitionists than it does about the Zong massacre. That's Anita Ruprecht, who I caught up with over Zoom a few weeks ago. Hello, thank you. Yes, my name's Anita Ruprecht. I'm a lecturer in the School of Humanities at the University of Brighton, and I teach on an interdisciplinary programme but mostly in relation to history, histories of empire, slavery and abolition. The Zong Massacre was a very important story for abolitionists in the 1780s, who, when they started campaigning against the slave trade, were really intent, and their big task really, was to gather information about the slave trade and to disseminate it to a public. For abolitionists, it kind of represented or became a way of speaking about African captives um, as victims of callous and evil and monstrous slave traders. And so it was a powerful, emotive story that could be kind of disseminated in order to garner people's sympathy who perhaps wouldn't have sympathy for... Africans who they had knew very little about. So as a form of colonised memory, what we can say is that that story that was told and retold of disaster, of catastrophe, of victims, of passive, silent, nameless victims and, you know, callous and evil traders, it was a story that rendered the fact that, in fact, Captain Africans resisted their enslavement, their capture, their transport every step of the way. It rendered that kind of invisible, the idea that this was struggle um, as opposed to kind of victimage, if you like, and, and pure suffering. It enabled abolitionists to portray captives through this benevolent and paternalistic kind of way that captives need rescuing. So in that sense, it's an abolitionist narrative that works very much in the services of an abolitionist agenda, which was a kind of a, you know, an emotive agenda. It was an agenda that very much saw captive Africans as innocent, pre-modern, you know, children, if you like, that needed to be saved. So it was on the one hand, it was an incredible movement against slavery in the slave trade, but it was represented through, very much through white colonial eyes. Did the people of Britain who didn't stop 
consuming sugar and coffee, not stop to consider how is this still happening if we've abolished slavery. And two, sort of in more direct correlation to our experience in sort of the 20th, 21st century, how this seems to ring true in the sort of humanitarian culture that we have and the sort of image of the white saviour. Just going back to the kind of the construction of abolitionist memory, it's so very much wedded to the construction of the nation, of Britishness itself. If we think about the place of the Zong in this longer history, you know, in the 1780s, the abolitionists were organised to campaign against the trade, not slavery itself. You know, abolitionists were a diverse bunch, but the, the elite kind of political wing of it, if you like, were very conservative evangelicals, most of them, who decided to campaign against the trade, but many of them, including William Wilberforce, was ambivalent about ending slavery itself. And so in 1807, when the Act to Abolish the British Slave Trade is passed, that's the moment of this, you know, you said this making of kind of British abolitionist history. And you're absolutely right. Britain outlawed its own part in the trade then. But this is a kind of a, you know, it's not just a British enterprise. It's, you know, the French, the Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese, you know, there are a whole range of other European countries involved. And so when Britain abolishes slavery in 1830, or finally in 1838, again, it's another moment of, look, we've done this first. But between 1807 and the the very ending of the last slave ships crossing the Atlantic in the 1860s, another two million Africans were transported. And whether very few Britons could be identified within what then came to be known as the illegal trade, financing, shipbuilding the supplying of goods for West Africa, you know, the shipping back of cotton. Circling back to the story of the Zong, if we were to rephrase the story of the Zong, what can this story tell us about the financial and professionalised system Britain created? So talking about insurance, property, commodification. Well, I think it's a story which leads straight into to all of those things. Um, and and that's you know that's one way to 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 start to un undo it as a as a narrative. Um, I mean, one thing I think even before that is to ask you know we have so little information about the Zong, actually, a scrap of a court record, and so one of the things I think first of all is to say why is that? Where and why do we find out about the Zong? It's through the abolitionist archive, and through a scrap of legal illegal history, which I think alerts us to how much we still don't know about the Middle Passage, that we can never access about the Middle Passage. So that's one kind of question. But, you know, coming back to what I was saying before, the story leads us straight into the implication of slavery with the development of empire and capitalism. The slave trade was an economic system that was developed for profit by commodifying human lives. And the story, I think we can start to unpack this, to remember that the story only came to light because it was told in relation to a dispute over an insurance policy. It didn't come to light because it came to court because 103 murders had taken place. The judge made it clear in the court, in the Guildhall, 
that this was a case about property, not about human beings. When halfway through this appeal case that we do have some record of, because an abolitionist happened to be there taking some notes, that actually that you know murder might have been an issue here, the judge just closed it down immediately and said this is about the calculation of financial loss and who should pay for that loss. It's not about what actually happened in that sense to people um, in, the, in the Caribbean. So it tells us that there are commercial laws that have been developed to support the structures of the slave trade. It tells us that financial instruments, policies designed specifically to cover um, captive peoples aboard ship from financial loss are in place. It tells us that ways of thinking modes of racial calculation, if you like, are securely in place to allow what happened at sea to have happened. And that's not to say that Captain Collingwood isn't, wasn't, you know, a, a guilty party here, a murderer, but he was operating with a set, within a set of highly developed structures that sanctioned his actions, whatever kind of moral conscience he didn't or did have. or So there are a set of economic and financial structures there that are born out of the financial revolution of the 18th century, which is in and of itself born out of the vast profits being accrued to the country from the slave trade and from colonialism, that remain in place today and that continue to extract profit from racialized lives today. If you go to the textbooks, the legal textbooks in the 18th century, then it's there and it's clear that slave traders demanded policies to cover what was seen to be and understood to be one of the most risky maritime ventures that you could engage in, one of the most lucrative, if successful, but also really dangerous and therefore carrying risks that therefore required some sort of underwriting to smooth the nerves, if you like, of those investing in this trade. Mm. It does answer it a little, although it then also triggers another question of if we've been existing in this sort of just accepting of what um, whoever's making these moves to to really um, determine what histories are sort of taken forward, what sort of ideologies are taken forward, what kind of um, key moves for erasure uh, sort of put forward I guess it seems to me like and I mean this may have happened in the past but it seems to me like sort of now more than ever there's real room potentially because of the fact that we're in an age of information and we're so globalized in that access to that information that we're in a new age of really questioning histories and uh, doing that from a, a sort of moral questioning more so than was ever sort of done before i guess that brings me to the second part around the term decolonization and how we move from what you've described around intention and everything else um so the question is can memories be decolonized to decolonize is you know a matter of really heated debate at the moment 
not so much whether we should or not, which is a heated debate, but also what it actually means. You know, there's a whole panoply of positions in relation to decolonising. It comes out of a very specific literature originally, Latin American literature, and it's now come to be used to stand for a variety of, of ways of approaching the questions that you just asked before. And so I hesitate to say decolonising is this. So in relation to what you were just saying before, though, about how we're living in an ever ever more kind of informed world and a globalising world with so much more access to information about what went on in the past, um, you know, uh, particularly in terms of empire and enslavement and the ways in which that, you know, hasn't been a matter of public history or memory in Britain. Um, what I would want to do there is to say, on the one hand, we have more information and facts, but I also think what's needed and what is happening is the changing approach to the questions that you ask of those facts and information. So in a sense, I could, I could say to you, you know, empire and imperialism and colonisation and enslavement have always been contested. And I think that's something that is perhaps sometimes missed out of contemporary assessments at the moment of whether empire is was all this or all that you know there has been particularly from the late 19th century onwards a really powerful anti-colonial movement we're not taught about anti-colonial resistance in terms of the memory of slavery in this country it has largely been forged by abolitionist memory yeah britain remembering slavery insofar as it remembers publicly that it abolished slavery and that does work in order to erase or invisibilize the long prehistory of Britain's involvement in enslavement and colonization as well as kind of you know producing a, a narrative of humanitarian overcoming and redemption and the moral high ground then Britain takes onwards into its later history of imperialism so when we're suggesting that that history needs decolonizing, what we can do there is to say, well, that means then that we need to engage in a more rigorous and critical study of empire and that everyone has the right to be able to learn how to be critical of the histories that they are taught, how to be more aware of the way knowledge is produced and which kinds of knowledge is um, have authority and which don't. In order to decolonise, we need to remember a history of resistance, of protest, and how that fitted in to what happened and how, in fact, resistors, protesters, anti-colonial movements have helped to reshape the histories and the events that, that, that have occurred. We also need, in terms of decolonising, to actually understand how systems of inequality and meanings of difference have come to be made and remade in the first place. How meanings of race were established, how meanings of class inequality, gendered inequality, come to mean what they mean. And to note those as part of a, of a historical process, not something kind of that's kind of naturalised and there and a, and a given. So I would say that, that decolonising involves... Um, at least the way I understand it, a critical engagement with the knowledges that we have and that we are that are kind of disseminated to us. 
and to be equipped with the skills to be able to do that. So it doesn't mean, and some people do think it does, particularly within institutions like universities, there's a lot of debate about curriculums and how actually curriculums need uh, more representation on them from non-white, non-European thinkers. So it's a kind of a question of diversifying a curriculum. But that can quickly look quite tokenistic or it doesn't actually dislodge the power and authority of the kinds of knowledges that universities are supposed to be delivering to us. In my thinking, while that is absolutely necessary, what we also need is critical thinking in a really fundamental level about knowledge production, which, you know, pushed to its extreme is really destabilising for the status quo. So the abolitionist story of the Zong focuses on the ship um, and this sets the scene of the Zong as happening over there or far away. Um, if we were to decolonize this memory, this story or this fact, as I would put it, why is the Guildhall an important actor in this? I think what the Guildhall does here is to make the connection between here and there and the then and the now as a particular site. Um, so while we might remember that ship over there and far away, the fact that the Zong trial, which was held in 1784, was held in the Guildhall, which was court of the king's bench, means that this prestigious ancient building, you know, which is on the national heritage list of Britain, which hosts the Lord Mayor's banquet, uh, which is an extraordinary kind of marker of heritage and Gothic splendour and, you know, the way in which it's kind of narrated, is also, through this story, exposed as a place where we can see the connections between the construction of that tradition, great tradition and kind of notion of cultural heritage kind of embodied in buildings as secured by a history of imperialism, colonialism and slavery. Um, so in that sense, I think that the Guildhall is an important actor in trying to rethink, decolonize the story or the history of the Zong. Serious unpacking of what's going on here has just simply not been done. And it's again, it's what we were calling colonized memory or a selective amnesia here that actually, you know, the, the, the reckoning of the contradictions that are at stake that are brought up in this history just aren't confronted. And I'm not saying that, you know, I know what I know what the answer would be, but I you know, I, I think you're absolutely right that it's that's extraordinary that, you know, the Guildhall is the place where this case was heard, and it was heard under these terms. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Anita's work does an amazing job of showing us how our histories when told from one side, can erase huge swathes of it. If properly confronted as debt and theft, the extent and all the many elements that contribute to this debt and theft must be properly understood and reckoned with. Through this framing, we can better understand and address racial injustice today. But where do buildings and statues in our cities fit into this? To get a handle on this evolving debate, I spoke with Dahlia Gabriel. I'm a PhD student at the London School of Economics. I have been involved in many campaigns around decolonising public space, including the Roads Must Fall campaign in Oxford. And I also edited and contributed a chapter to a book on the topic, Decolonising the University, alongside two of my great colleagues, uh, Govinda Bambara and Karem Nishanjolu. I began by asking Dahlia, how collective amnesia manifests itself as cultural erasure. I mean, I think there is there is a considerable and quite deliberate gap in Britain's public knowledge of its modern history, its modern constitution. And, you know, I think for the first time, you know, during the Rose Must Fall campaign, like that was the first time in my lifetime, you know, someone sort of like raised here that, you know, discussions and, and explicit conversations around the significance and the detail uh, of the empire were, were kind of drawn out, um, albeit in a very chaotic and, and uh, in many ways unproductive way, but still uh, the conversation was still 
um, being had. And I think that, you know, the only data that we really have on how Brits perceive that the empire is um, a, U- a YouGov poll. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. It's a 2015 um, YouGov poll where, you know, 59% of British adults uh, viewed the empire as something to be proud of. And I think that, you know, the fact that that is the only data that we have, um, you know, suggest it's sort of testament to the level of importance that is kind of given to this topic and given to this understanding of of Britain's literacy, of the literacy of British people when it comes to to race and, and colonialism. So I think the question really is wh- why is contesting these histories, you know, a worthy one? I think that there tends to often be this idea that it's in the past and often, you know, the, the language that we use to talk about it is different to how we talk to other peri- talk about other periods of history, where, you know, we're told that we the only frameworks through which we can relate to it is through the framework of either guilt or pride, right? Which is attaching a kind of quite useless emotion set of emotions to something that is merely about understanding the reality of the world that we live in today how it has come to exist and how it continues to exist. And, you know, tales of, of industrial revolution are, are, have been very deliberately separated from the colonial trade routes that, and, you know, the colonised labour, the enslaved labour that made the rapid development and continued development of Britain and Europe uh, possible. The, the Enlightenment is, is often conceived of as a self-contained European project rather than something that was constituted through and alongside imperialism and slavery. And, you know, these kind of twin processes of, of both effacing the importance of the colonial core of modernity um, and, you know, the, the kind of racialising of particular kind of principles like objectivity and you know history and these kind of things that exist in these very these terms that exist in these very loaded ways are really foundational to how we understand the world around us but they are fundamentally flawed i guess what comes to mind to me is how hypocritical a lot of that is all of what they're saying and describing is essentially describing themselves so when you're talking about immigrants and immigration and 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 washing up on somebody else's shores um, and taking advantage and all of that kind of stuff, to me, it just sounds like you're just describing Europeans in America. It sounds like you're describing Europeans in Australia. It sounds like you're describing Europeans, you know, in South and Central America. For me, that's it's it's like a, a cycle of collective amnesia and forgetting one thing that we would hear all the time is you can't erase history and it's like no we're learning about this to understand why our world is unequal in the way that it is and to therefore find a way through it and to create a more just world your guilt is useless to me by trapping it in that conversation that's been a very effective way to kind of curtail to to curtail the 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 real kind of material and political interventions that contestations around statues and public space in Britain are really a symbol for. So understanding the um, how collective amnesia and forgetting, um, particularly in industries of finance, insurance and property, how that understanding really 
um, connects to matters of racial inequality in our present day. The key issue here is a refusal to understand that systems that have our markers of modernity and markers of so-called development are reliant upon incredibly violent patterns of extraction and exploitation of the resources and the bodies and the work um, of people who are racialized outside of whiteness. And I think that in order for that system to, those systems to retain their integrity and their, their legitimacy, a, a kind of concealing of those patterns of exploitation and those patterns of brutality that make them exist, that make them what they are. They have to be justified through repertoires and um, uh, dis- like discursive frameworks that justify why vast swathes of the world's population are perennially, perennially without the basic means of survival and are perennially at the, facing the, um, the brute force of state violence and corporate violence. And so the function of race in, that, in that, those mechanisms is to create a justifying narrative of why vast swathes of the human population, of the world's population, the subjection of, of people to those forms of violence is innate, it's expected, it's uneventful. And that is where the relationship between racial inequality and ideas of racial, you know, racial essence and the necessary designation of vast swathes of, of, of human beings as disposable or as highly exploitable, that's where the material and the cultural and political and discursive come together and work together in order to allow these institutions to continue to exist. So I think this is very much a question about how those institutions have come to exist, but also how they continue to exist. What, what do you think it will take for them to, for these institutions, to, for these institutions to really reckon with themselves if they were to deal with racial inequality today? The, the embeddedness of race and coloniality, of racial and colonial violence in Britain's history can, is literalised, it's, you know, physically embodied by the presence of this statue, which is of someone who, you know, was, a, was you know, owned slaves or was a kind of, you know, diamond magnate in Southern Africa. And I think there's a pro- there's a real risk of of that becoming reduced to simply you know rearranging the window dressing of a racist and classist world, right? And the the, the removal of statues and monuments or the sort of renaming of streets becomes a replacement for the work of doing anti racism um, and transforming the way that we clothe ourselves, the ways that we heat our homes, the way that we eat our food, the ways that we do all of these essential things that are part of our, the way that we coexist with one another in ways that don't rely on exploitation and hierarchy and brutalization. And and I think that it's really, there's a real limitation to to speaking about these issues without that connection to that material 
if this was just about changing the stories and making nicer stories, it would be we wouldn't be getting the backlash that we're getting. It would be much easier. The stories inform the continuation of material practices of violence and expropriation. But I think that that is a real danger that I think we start to accept that the point of this was always to just conduct a review of every statue in London. You know, if we wanted to really get rid of every brick in London that was the product of slavery and colonialism, London wouldn't exist. And that's the point. Bringing it all back to sort of the built environment, what do you think is the relationship between these different systems, buildings and spaces? To look at the story of the road statue in particular, I think is, is a really good case study um, of why I think statues provoke the reactions that they do. Cecil Rhodes is someone who accrued, you know, sizable wealth, political influence through the blood and the labour of black Southern Africans. He then used that wealth that was accrued through those methods to buy the allegiance and the front-facing and built space of one of the most respected educational institutions in the world. He actually commissioned that statue of himself as a condition of his donation to Oriel College. Um, and I think in, in the story of that statue, I think we learn about how institutions in the global north, which kind of wield very significant power and influence in shaping the lives of people across the world, were built um, physically and politically and socially. And it shows us that a lot of these institutions are not these sort of neutral sites of knowledge exchange. They are sites where power is consolidated and reproduced. We don't learn how he came to be there or from where his ability to be a munificent benefactor um, came from. It's taken for granted to the extent that it just kind of fades in the background. Like you could walk past that statue every day for 20 years and not notice it. And it just sort of comes to be in a way that was never really explained and isn't explicit. So it has this kind of like hyper visibility because it's literally on the high street, but this simultaneous invisibility. It's everywhere, but we barely see it. And I think that is very much emblematic of our relationship to colonialism and slavery. It is the the, the dark underside of modernity, which um I think Maldonado Torres calls it. So it's infused in all of these these systems that we take for granted, that we use every day and that are very much a part of our everyday life, but it's not named. On the back of that, I wanted to ask if you felt that there was any difference between um, the statues of colonizers and, slave and slavers and buildings of empire and slavery. For example, we're talking about Royal Exchange versus Edward Colson. Is there a difference in sort of, yeah, the statues versus the buildings? The question here is not, was this build, is this building immoral? Or did he just think, did the building think that it was, you know, just obeying the values of its time? But rather thinking, what was the purpose of that building then? What was the purpose of that building now? What is the connect, what are the connections between those two things? And what do we want that building to be for in the future? That could mean um, it could, sometimes it looks like repurposing. Sometimes it looks like transformation. Sometimes it looks like abolition. That's the interesting conversation. And I think that buildings lend themselves to that a little bit more because they kind of depersonalize it. 
depersonalizes it doesn't become a conversation on well how many good things did he do and how many bad things did he do and is one worse or better than the other because that's a really boring conversation (laughs) and doesn't really get us anywhere um so I actually think that in many ways campaigns around buildings could be more fruitful in that kind of discussion so if the if the society starts to confront these cultures of erasure in our histories and the amnesia that this erasure leads to, could we create reparative history? And then I guess second to that is how could or how would these buildings such as the Royal Exchange or the Guildhall or, you know, Jamaica Coffee House, how could they play a role? I think that the the reason, the role that, you know, this kind, these kinds of conversations have in that question of a reparative history is when you think about the reparations movement and what is meant when we talk about reparations, the first hurdle towards a repar- like reparative justice, the thing that we still haven't gotten over is the recognition, is the recognition of the need for repair, the recognition that something was broken that people were broken, that lands were broken, that the climate was broken. And it was broken by particular processes and particular... These aren't natural, um, you know, processes. These are man-made ones that that we are all accountable for. And I think that 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 recognition is, is such an important first step to that. And that still hasn't happened yet. And I think what the contestations around these buildings and around these statues was always about was it was about trying to push through collective action and also through concretizing these conversations in quite specific ways to begin to build that recognition and to begin to build the possibilities of that recognition. And even in the past five years, I've seen a shift, right? Like when I when I was involved in Rose Must Fall in 2015, when this was one of the first kind of like, it probably wasn't the first time, but it was like a very uh, early iteration of these kinds of of movements and these kinds of appro- these kinds of methods. And I don't know if anyone remembers it, but it was not received well. Um, it was absolutely, it struck a nerve that I didn't know was so raw. Now, I think that conversation is looking really different. Um, that's not to say that, you know, we're not still having some of the same arguments, uh, like what it means to erase history and what is and is not erasing history and what history even is. We're still having those conversations, but the tenor and the basic principles of understanding of those conversations are very, very different. And that, I think, is testament to the work of the work of public education, the work of that kind of contestation, that it has caused that shift. And it can sometimes, because these changes happen very incrementally, it can sometimes feel very despairing and very sort of like oh my god like it we're worse in a worse situation you know 2015 was pre-Trump right we're we're in a worse position now but I think that there has been shifts have been made in that time that will be very difficult to undo and I can see that in the younger generation I can see that in the protests that we have seen over the summer they were made of something different than in 2015.
we continue to erase and project the version of history that is most comfortable. Nevertheless, the finance systems of stocks and shares, the commercial laws and marine insurance tell us as much, if not more, about the attitudes and behaviour that built and shaped these systems than the narrative selected and disseminated by abolitionists. And what's more, these systems were never abolished. They are alive and thriving. We shouldn't forget any of this, or the fact that the places and buildings where all this took place here in London still stand. The architecture of our cities are not just artefacts that remind us of this history. They are an active actor in colonial and contemporary race relations. I'm Selassie Setifer, and you're listening to Slavery and the City. This episode has been produced in partnership with the City of London Corporation as part of its drive to tackle racism in all its forms. Its Tackling Racism Task Force is leading this work, assessing what further action the City Corporation can take to promote economic, educational and social inclusion, and considering how to respond to the historical issues such as statues and monuments. You can find out more at ourcitytogether.london. If you'd like to hear our full interviews with Anita Ruprecht and Dahlia Gabriel, sign up to become an Open City friend and you'll be able to access the full interviews with Selassie and all the amazing contributors for the series. For one twenty-five a week, you can support the hosting costs of the Open City podcast, helping to keep conversations about the city open, honest and accessible. Alongside the Open City podcast, we have The Lundown, our weekly roundup of the week's top London architecture news, Tune in every Thursday morning with Merlin Fulcher and a roster of special guests. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.